St. Louis radio legend. Controversial. Outspoken. We're going to talk a number of topics with Bob Costas. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Uh, we're now joined by uh, Missouri State Representative from Springfield, Sarah Lamb. Coach Ken Carter. How you doing today, Coach? Well, we're not always honored, but we're honored today to have one of the great legends of sports and certainly one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived with us. And that is the great Jerry West. His book is West by West, My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Jay Paterno, the author of Paterno Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father. It's fall and it's football, and I'm I'm assuming you're excited, but I'm also assuming there are mixed emotions. Uh, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously I'd like to be coaching, but, you know, those things will... That'll come with, you know, in time. Cardinal President Bill DeWitt III has joined us. Bill, how are you this afternoon? Hey, Kevin. How are you doing? Well, we welcome one of my favorite people in all of sports, former Cardinal General Manager and shortstop, Dal Maxville, to the show. Maxie, how are you? I am very good, Kevin. Real good, as a matter of fact. How about yourself? And we welcome the athletic director from the University of Oklahoma and the current sitting chairman of the Men's Basketball Committee, for the NCAA tournament, Joe Castiglione, our good friend. Joe, how are you today? Excellent, Kevin. And that bumper music got me fired up, and uh, and you're at Harpo's. <laughs> Holy cow. Blues owner Tom Stillman joins us. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations on that fantastic announcement. Thanks very much. We're really excited about it. We've wanted to get an outdoor game for quite a while, and, and uh, now we've got one. All right, we've got Norm, uh, Norm Stewart, the, the Mizzou legend, is with us here. Coach, uh, thanks for joining us. It's always great to catch up with you. How are things today with you in Virginia? Oh, we're doing great, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. And John Sunvold, one of the greats in Mizzou basketball history, uh, was featured as part of the documentary, and John joins us now. Hi, John. How are you? Kevin, I'm doing great. Uh, how about yourself? And Tim Donahue, former NBA official, who uh, joins us now. He has written book, a book about his life in the NBA, Tim Don, he joins us now. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. We go to the uh, phone line with Dan Deere visiting with us, the Hall of Famer, and, of course, uh, just ending his career at CBS but beginning his career as the one of the voices of Michigan football again. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello, Kevin. How are you this afternoon? You hear that song? Of course, that's one of the songs from the soundtrack of the 2001 movie Remember the Titans, and one of the subjects, the main subject of that movie was Head coach Herman Boone from T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria. And Coach Boone joins us this afternoon. Hello, Coach Boone. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kevin Slayton, along with former Cincinnati Bengal guard Dave Lapham. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kevin Slayton, alongside J.C. Pearson. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening? Holy cow. And a good Tuesday afternoon, St. Louis and all points, northeast, south, and west. We welcome you in. This is the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court right here on kevinslaytonshow.com. And, of course, you can also hear the podcast right here, as well as on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Anchor, and any place else where they play a fine podcast. This is the leader, of course, the best one. You don't need to listen to any of the other ones. 
Seriously. I mean, come on. Come on, folks. Get your boost of energy. You need that boost, that push, that focus. Get going, and you need Monster Energy Drink to do it. At Monster, they do things differently because Monster Energy isn't just a drink. It's a lifestyle in a can. And it's the world's greatest skiers, the world's greatest skaters and boarders and bikers and rockers and racers and gamers and girls. They have parties that they plan, making the greatest, coolest events a reality. Monster Energy Drink, unleash the beast. Our phone lines are open for you always, 636-348-4460. You can join us at any time you'd like. And we will, of course, enjoy it with you. 636-348-4460. A lot of things happening in the sports world today. I don't know if you saw this one, though. The New York Times has disbanded its sports department. You say, what? Yeah, they're disbanding it. 35 people are involved, but they're not going to lose their jobs because the New York Times bought the the Athletic that website that in its entirety, and so those 35 people will be assimilated into The Athletic. They acquired The Athletic last year for $550 million, but it's not the same. Sports of the Times is what they always called it. And you would, back in the day when I got the New York Times, before I found out what a liberal rag it was, you could uh, get the, the readings of Red Smith and other great columnists that wrote for the Times. That's why they call it the, the Sports of the Times, because the big stories were in the New York Times. But now it's the Athletic where the New York Times stories will come. Arthur Daly wrote the column in 1956, won a Pulitzer Prize. Sports of the Times, Walter Wellesley, Red Smith in 76, Dave Anderson in 81. All of those guys won Pulitzer Prizes writing columns for Sports of the Times. So it's a sad day in the sports journalism world, although the New York Times being what it is, it wasn't the same anyway. Sadly, and I don't say that with any great pride. It's just the way it is. But it's no longer. So if you want the New York Times, the sports of the Times, you go to The Athletic, and that's where you're going to find it. All-Star Game is tonight. Does anyone care? Does anyone care who won the home run derby last night? Anyone? Bueller? I did notice, though, that two of the guys that were in the Home Run Derby, when I saw the list of players, wore Cardinal uniforms until they were given away for nothing. Randy Rosarina, who went to Tampa, and then for Liberator, who's now in the minor leagues, and Aroldis Garcia, who is in the middle of the lineup for the first-place Texas Rangers, he was given away for a few dollars. No players involved. Amazing, isn't it? Those two would look nice in the Cardinal outfield, wouldn't they? In addition, the starter for the National League tonight will be Zach Gallen, a former Cardinal pitcher, traded along with Sandy Alcantara to the Florida Marlins in exchange for Marcelo Zuna, who's no longer with the Cardinals. He's with the Atlanta Braves, and he's not doing very well. He's almost out of baseball. 
So there are Cardinal All-Stars all over the place in the All-Star game. They're just not wearing Cardinal uniforms. They're wearing someone else's uniform. Our phone lines are open, 636-348-4460. And this Cardinal regime that's there under Moselock, and it needs desperately to be changed, desperately, still can't recognize the lack of pitching in this organization, not only at the major league level, but throughout the organization. At every minor league whistle stop in the Cardinal organization, you won't find any pitchers. So with the Major League Baseball draft Sunday and yesterday and then finishing up today, you think, well, the Cardinals at least went out and got a whole bunch of pitchers, right? Early in the draft with their top picks. Well, we told you yesterday they picked Chase Davis, an outfielder from the University of Arizona, with their first pick, the 21st overall in round one. They didn't have a second-round pick. So their next pick was number 90 overall in the third round, so then they got a pitcher, right? Nope, another outfielder. Travis Honeyman from Boston College. Not until the 122nd pick of the Major League Draft, having picked two outfielders, did the Cardinals think it was a good time to take a pitcher. They took Quinn Matthews in the fourth round from Stanford. So an organization that has no pitchers, no starters, no relievers, no starters, no relievers in the, in the minor league system, gets a chance to draft some of the top pitchers in college baseball or amateur baseball, and they wait until the fourth round to take a pitcher. So you figure round five, they'll follow that up with another pitcher, right? Nope, you'd be wrong. With the 158th pick, they took, altogether class, another outfielder. (laughs) If you're counting, and we hope you are, That's three outfielders with their first four picks, one pitcher. It's a friend of the show by the name of Bill Boyle. Bill listened to our show religiously, was a big fan of the show. That would drive him nuts. He passed away from cancer a few years ago. His son went out to the cemetery yesterday on the anniversary of his death, and they sat and listened to the show. So we want to say, Bill, me boy, we're always thinking of you. And we pass along, pass along great Irish greetings to you. And when we know you're listening to us in a better place right now, and we know you can't take this cardinal nonsense, he would not put up with it. He wouldn't have stood for it for a second. So carpe diem to Bill Boyle. And we thank his son, Mike, for going out to the cemetery and listening to the show. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Well, after the Cardinals were done taking another outfielder in the fifth round, They then took pitchers in the 6th and 7th round, but who knows how good they're going to be. They also took a pitcher in the 8th and ninth round, and they went back to the outfield in the 10th round. The Cardinals don't need outfielders. And yet, out of nine picks, they picked a bunch of outfielders. That's just incredible to me. It really is. So they've got some picks to go still today. The 11th round pick will be the 335th pick of the of the draft. But the Cardinals did nothing to help themselves in the early rounds of the draft. They didn't get the pitching that they desperately need. You just have to scratch your head and say, how does John Moselock continue to have a job? I don't understand it. 
that that's who the Cardinals took. That's who you get to look forward to seeing play with the birds on the bat, a bunch of a whole bunch of outfielders. And we don't know if any of those pitchers are any good. The first pitcher they took was in the fourth round. He certainly isn't at the top of the list of everybody. But you never know. P- pitchers can develop later. The point is, the Cardinals didn't put a prerequisite on pitching. And you wonder why they lose. And you wonder why people have stopped going, and they have. Now, would there be a chance that the Cardinals would sign Shohei Otani, the two-way superstar, two-position superstar, who is a free agent at the end of the season? He's with the Angels, of course, now. There's a big Asian population in Southern California, especially L.A. Would he sign with the Dodgers in the offseason as a free agent? One would have to think the Dodgers, along with the Angels, would be the front runners, though the Angels aren't very good and they just can't seem to win. Now you're hearing 50, maybe 60 million. It'll be the gold standard for contracts. That's per year, by the way. And yet he's worth every penny of it. He's an all-star at two positions. Today, you pay your top players $25, $30 million a year. So if you have a player who can play two of those top positions and he's one of your top players at both positions, he's a 25 to $30 million a year guy. If I'm Otani's agent, I'm getting 60 And who can pay that? Only a few teams. Certainly the Angels can pay it. They wasted a ton of money on Pujols and others. Certainly the Dodgers can pay it. They have trimmed payroll in the anticipation of going after him. But it's going to be interesting at the end of the season. Now, he basically bet on himself to climb the ranks, and he's, his gamble has paid off. He signed with the Angels for $2.3 million, a bonus in 2017. He's 28 now, and he's set to cash in. The lifetime of his contract is projected to be $500 million plus. Over a 10-year career, that'd be $50 million a year. I think he can get more. You have to think to yourself, okay, how many peak years does he have as a starting pitcher? Probably five more max. Dusty Baker said he's not just an all-star, he's a megastar. That's the manager of the world champion Astros. I'm certain the Astros aren't going to make a bid on him. They have too many good players as it is. Whoever does this is going to be a team that has to win and has a window that's closing. The Dodgers, for instance, the Angels with Trout. Their windows are closing, both of those teams. Their better players are getting long in the tooth. The Dodgers trim payroll in the offseason in anticipation of going after him strong. It's going to be sensational to see what happens. But Otani's going to cash in. He will be the highest paid player in baseball history, and he will remain so for a long time. For a number of years, whoever signed the biggest contract in that particular offseason 
was the highest paid player in baseball. It, it changed every year. At one point, Ozzie Smith was. I think his was $2 million a year. And then it just escalated. And this year, Otani's going to cash in at numbers you've never heard of before. And when he does, he's going to set that bar where it won't be touched until another two-way player comes along. I'm not sure there will be one, but he is one. There's no doubt he is one. The biggest story of the day in sports isn't the All-Star game. It's the scandal up at Northwestern University where the football coach there, Pat Fitzgerald, who's been a staple of Northwestern football for 26 years. Four as a player, five as an assistant coach, 17 years as the head coach, and he was the current head coach. He's been fired. A disgruntled ex-player transferred and then started making outlandish claims about hazing. Some players have said there was hazing, but it wasn't anywhere near to the level what this guy's describing. Some of the descriptions range from upperclassmen taking younger players who goofed up at practice into a darkened locker room, stripped down, and then performed fake sex acts. Strange stuff, to be sure. But just four days ago, Pat Fitzgerald, after a university-wide investigation commissioned by an independent law firm, suspended Fitzgerald for two weeks. Both sides agreed to it. Both sides. And so when Fitzgerald was notified that he's being fired, he understandably was upset, said he was surprised, and he's got an attorney who's handling it. There was also a complaint of racism in the culture at the Northwestern football locker room. A Latino offensive lineman who's no longer at Northwestern. He works as a clinical therapist said players made race-based comments routinely about his Hispanic heritage, said he was forced to shave Cinco de Mayo into his hair during a freshman tradition. Who cares? You know what? If I were playing football or if I were playing soccer, let's say, in Europe, and as a ritual they in my first year there, they forced me to uh, shave an American flag into my, in my scalp, why would I care? Or 4th of July, why would I care? I wouldn't care. He claims he has PTSD after experiencing flashbacks of his time in the locker room, as if he was in Vietnam. Here's the problem. The problem is you have a culture of candy asses. That's the problem. The sexual stuff is weird. It's it's weird. It's crossing the line, probably. But it doesn't deserve a coach to be fired. It deserves discipline for the players. PTSD. Make me laugh, please. What a joke. Maybe that's why Northwestern wasn't winning. If you have a player who gets all butthurt about a shaving Cinco de Mayo into his noggin, into his hair, on what is a Mexican holiday, then you got a, a weak sister in your locker room.
Two other players claimed there was alleged racist treatment during their tenures. Black players were pushed to cut their hair, they said, and one not to wear certain apparel because he wasn't in the hood anymore. Black assistant coaches were asked to cut their hair, calling it the Wildcat way. White players were routinely allowed to keep longer haircuts. Now, that's according to a player. We don't know if that's true or not. But plenty of football coaches force their players to cut their hair. I remember when I was in high school playing at CBC, our head coach told us any hair hanging outside the helmet is mine. So we cut our hair. And we had to have short hair during the year anyway because it was a military high school at the time. But during the preseason practice sessions, we didn't. But because we were on his football team, we did. Those were the rules. If you play for the New York Yankees right now, you have to cut your hair, shave your face. No beards, no mustaches, no long hair. Ask Harrison Bader. Ask Johnny Damon. But I didn't hear them act like weasels and start whining about it. So from a two-week suspension to being fired, that's uh, quite a difference for Pat Fitzgerald. And I guarantee, based on his comments, not only is he not thrilled by it, he's going to sue Northwestern. And when he sues Northwestern, I have a feeling it's going to end in a settlement. The question then would become, how does it hurt him going forward? If he can prove that other schools aren't hiring him because of what Northwestern did to him, that could end up in a big-time lawsuit. He's been the head coach there since 2006. In the history of the school, Northwestern has won six bowl games. Fitzgerald won five of them. Four as a coach, one as a player. He is the runaway most successful coach in the history of Northwestern football. The president of the university, Michael Schill, that's a perfect name for him, isn't it? Says the decision comes after a difficult and complex evaluation of my original discipline decision imposed last week on Coach Fitzgerald. It's for his failure to know and prevent significant hazing in the football program. Over the last 72 hours, I've spent a great deal of time in thought and in discussions with people who love our school. Oh, yeah. Sounds like it. She'll claims that the investigative report will remain confidential. What are you hiding? What are you hiding? Eleven current or former players... Acknowledge that hazing had been going ongoing with the football program. Well, that's the same as it is everywhere. I promise you that. Hazing goes on in every sport. Did it cross the line? That's the question. So we don't know. And since Northwestern isn't going to make public the report, we'll probably never know. We'll have to simply go by what Coach Fitzgerald says and then take into account what the players say. But when you've got one player who transferred, who's who's the leader of the pack in these complaints, that runs to credibility. So 30 years of distinction at Northwestern University out the window.
This president of the university said over the last two days, he's received hundreds and hundreds of emails describing how Coach Fitzgerald has transformed the lives of current and former players. He says, we have an obligation to live by our values. What values? Are the Northwestern values such that you make an agreement of discipline and then days later you change it? You go back on your word? Is that your value at Northwestern? I got news for that president. He's going to be in trouble next. His head's on the chopping block. Because depending on the donor's level of comfort with Coach Fitzgerald, that will be quickly tied to the university president. The damage done to our institution is significant, he says, as is the harm to some of our students. Baloney, how is Northwestern damaged by some hazing? It isn't. These weren't kids being forced to drink until they threw up and vomited all over themselves, like in many schools, in fraternities all over the country. That's dangerous. These were some misguided players who needed a lesson in discipline. At least from what we know. Based on what we know so far. It's bizarre, really. Three times Northwestern has won 10 games in Pat Fitzgerald's tenure there. They won 10 games only one other time in the history of the program. So Fitzgerald isn't happy about it. We can only wait and see what happens next. But as I said, there's a lawyer that's been hired by him. And so my guess is there's going to be a major lawsuit coming Northwestern's way. A little bit later on on our show, Jay Paterno will talk about what what Penn State did to his father during the Sandusky scandal some 12 years ago. And in that particular case, it was a weak administration that fell victim as the cowardice set in to what people might say, might say. Never mind 60 years of loyalty to the university, donations of tens of millions of dollars from the paternal family to Penn State, 60 years of 88% graduation rates on the football program, and as I mentioned, donations of millions of dollars, Joe Paterno was fired. Well, if they'll fire Joe Paterno, they'll fire Pat Fitzgerald, especially today. You name me one school, one, that isn't hopelessly woke, hopelessly messed up, and I'll name you a miracle. A miracle. Because that's what it's going to take, a miracle. We are in such horrific times right now. And for Pat Fitzgerald, he's experiencing them. I don't know all of the details. Of course I don't. What I do know is most of this stuff sounded like fun to kids who are 18 to 22 years old. Did they go a little too far with the sexual baloney? Yes. But, you know, that's how guys are in a locker room. I don't care what anybody says. Locker room talk is real. It happens. And it's among guys. And it's always been that way.
Our good friends at stl-cars.com want you to know this. If you're in the market for a new car, SUV, or truck, they are the ones to call, and I can testify to that because I did. I called them at 314-626-3251. 314-626-3251. And when I called them, I asked for Don. And I looked on their website, and I looked at the thousands of vehicles they have there. Picked one. In my case, I didn't get the exact one off the website. I said, here's what I'm looking for. Can you find me something like that? He did, and he'll do it for you. Tell him what you want to pay for it, and he'll go get it. I've now purchased three vehicles from stl-cars.com. My son just purchased an SUV. His came in from Alabama. Mine came in from Tennessee. They have a vast network of inventory around the country. They have a concierge maintenance service for you, service department. All you do is look at the website, pick what you want, call them, tell them the price you want. You can even text them, 314-626-3251, ask for Don. Don't make getting a new car or truck or SUV akin to going to the dentist. Call or text Don, tell them what you want, tell them the price, and presto, it's yours. It's yours. It can't get any easier, right? 314-626-3251. That's stl-cars.com. We're right here in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com. Kings Court on kevinslaytonshow.com. Get yourself a Monster Energy Drink. If you're tired, if you're a little bit in need of a boost, Monster Energy Drink can get you through the day. Make sure you take at least a can with you to work. That's the way to do it. I mentioned college football and Pat Fitzgerald. Four teams became new members of the Big 12 Conference on July 1st. Now, remember, this is the conference that Missouri used to be in when it was the Big 8 originally. Actually, originally it was the Big 6, but it was the Big 8 during most of Missouri's uh, successful years with Dan Devine, Al Onofrio. And then it became the Big 12 when some teams were consolidated from the Southwest Conference. And now it's the Big 12, except it has 14 teams. When it was the Big 8, it had 8 teams. When it was the Big 12, it had 12 teams. Now it's going to have 14. And then it's going to have 12 next year because Oklahoma and Texas will leave next year. It's musical chairs in college sports. What you're having is the birth of the Super Conference. It started in the SEC. It's now going to the Big 12 and the Pac-12. I mean, the Atlantic Coast Conference has it mostly in basketball. But the others, the have-nots, are going to be left out in the cold. That's why it's becoming increasingly more important to expand the playoff field to eight or ten teams. Ten teams ideally, because then the top two could get a bye. You'd have four games the first weekend of the playoffs. You'd have four winners. And then you add the other two in, and you have six. So you have three games, and then you cut it down. You'd only add about three weeks onto the season, and that only for the two that play for the championship. It makes perfect sense. Here are the four new teams going into the Big 12 Conference. Now, keep in mind, some are from the uh, Gang of Five, The other was, well, 
I, I, I hate even saying that. So, you know, I'm not even, gonna, I'm not even going to call it that. I think, I think it's, that's not a good look. I mean, why, why, why would we call it that? Right. It doesn't make any sense. But you've got a billion dollars that these four schools invested. A billion dollars. It's quite an investment, right? So you got three group of five schools that are in, Cincinnati, Houston, and Central Florida, and one independent, BYU. Now, BYU has held its own against all comers for years. Cincinnati, Houston, and Central Florida have been ranked teams. Cincinnati got in the playoffs. The other three haven't gotten there just yet. Central Florida had undefeated seasons. One year they claimed that they were the national champions because they felt snubbed by the playoff system, which they were. So they'll start play in the Big 12 this year with 14 teams. After this season, Oklahoma and Texas head to the SEC. And that will give the SEC about 300 games, or 300 teams. Leave the Big 12 with with a 12. But here's the interesting thing. Of the 12 Big 12 teams, remember this was the Big 8 swallowing up the Southwest Conference to make it 12. Of the 12 remaining teams, only four will be from the original Big 8. Iowa State, Kansas, Kansas State, and Oklahoma State. You've got Southern Cal and UCLA playing in the Big 10 now. So come November, they're going to have a game in Penn State at Rutgers, Michigan, Ohio State. Those Southern California guys have not played in that kind of cold, I guarantee you. Is this good for the sport? I don't think it is. I think it's bad for college football, to be honest with you. I know it's always about money, and it's no different here. As I said, the teams spent a billion dollars together to get in. And the athletic director at Houston, Chris Pesman, said we'd have given our left left testicle to get in two years ago. But now we're in actually a better spot. The ACC added seven schools, all Power Five schools, and Notre Dame's non-football sports from 2004 to 2014. The Big Ten added four from 90 to 2014. The SEC added four from 99 to 2013. The Big East came and went in football. They're, they're done. And yet the SEC is adding two more from the Big 12 next year, Oklahoma and Texas. It's all an arms race. I was up at uh, Mizzou last fall for a game against Abilene Christian with former Mizzou quarterback Steve Pizarquitz, who, who arranged for a tour of the football building, the new football facility. And a former player took us through there. And it's impressive. You've got healing pools like you went to Lourdes. And you've got everything else from a plush theater room to watch film and to have team meetings where I would fall asleep. It'd be easy to fall asleep in there. Bring your girlfriend in there, stick a movie in and watch a movie. Barber shops, dining halls, lavish locker rooms. And when we asked, Steve Pizarkowitz asked the player who gave us the tour, but how does any of this translate into winning? 
And he said it doesn't. It's just for recruiting. $100 million Missouri spent on that building for recruiting because you have to show recruits that you're going to keep up with the other teams, the other schools. And yet Missouri still can't recruit. And they still can't win. The University of Missouri could be successful if it would simply close the borders of the state of Missouri. Keep all the kids in the state in the state. Norm Stewart always told me in basketball he recruited Mr. Basketball in high school basketball from the state of Missouri every year, whether he played at a small school or a large school or any in between, even if Norm didn't think he could ever play at Mizzou. He said, I recruited him anyway. I wanted the state to know, all the high school coaches to know, that I will always recruit the best players in Missouri. And the football program hasn't done that in a long, long time. They lose players all the time to other schools. That shouldn't happen. But there has to be a sense of pride developed in the program before you can go that route. It doesn't make any sense for a kid who gets an offer from Tennessee to go to Missouri, does it? I mean, his parents can come down to Tennessee and watch him play, and he'll be playing for a winner for the coach that should have been the Missouri head coach, Josh Heupel. But the Missouri Athletic Department screwed that up to a fairly well. Heupel was on the Mizzou staff, left to go to Central Florida and turn them into a winner, then left there to take the Tennessee job, where last year at one point in the season was ranked number one. Missouri can't get it right because they have incompetent people at the top. When you have incompetent people at the top, you're not going to succeed. Any school that would give the head football coach a two-year extension on his contract with a large raise when he has never had a winning season, hasn't won a bowl game, in fact lost to Army. That's what I said, Army. And you gave him a two-year raise and extension. And people in Missouri wonder why they lose. I don't wonder why they lose. In fact, I don't wonder at all. So those are the four teams going in, BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, and Central Florida. It'll actually be a fun conference to watch. Those are good teams, good schools. I'll enjoy watching that conference probably more than the SEC. Here's the problem for Missouri and the SEC. You still don't have any natural rivals. With the Big 12, you had them. Kansas, Kansas State, Iowa State, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. Well, you'll still get Oklahoma now in the SEC. Don't know if you want them, but you'll get them. Of course, Nebraska left the Big 12 and went to the Big 10. How's that working out for them? Not well. We talk about the state of Missouri being so far behind in everything. We had... uh, former state rep Bob Burns on the other day to talk about sports betting and where it stands in the state. It's being blocked by one person. And lo and behold, down in Kentucky, they have now ratified a bill that sports betting will be able to be done in person in September in the state of Kentucky. And yet we don't have it here. Now, down in Kentucky, of course, they've always had horse racing. The Kentucky Horse Racing Commission met Monday 
to pass regulations for sports betting in the state. So the tracks were cool with it. But here we sit, right? And we don't have it in Missouri, thereby losing a huge revenue option for tax. Huge. I said earlier this morning on my current event show, and I at the at the top of this show, it was forty three years ago today that one of the greatest events in tennis occurred. Wimbledon is going on right now over in London, outside of London. But the forty one years ago, I should say, forty one years ago today, in nineteen eighty two, January or July eleventh, John McEnroe and Mutz Vilander played in a Davis Cup final in St. Louis. The two countries were tied, Sweden and the United States, two apiece. So the singles match between McEnroe and Vlander was for the, the, the country to advance. And Davis Cup's huge. It's like World Cup soccer at the time. So it's a best of five, three out of five sets. The first set should have given us an indication. It went 9-7. The third set went 17-15. Remember, you play to six games. Whoever gets to six first wins if you win by two. If you don't win by two, you have to keep playing until someone does. 17-15. And then the fifth set went 8-6. McEnroe won, and he recalled falling into Arthur Ashe's arms, who was the U.S. captain at the time. McEnroe said, I had just lost to Jimmy Connors in the finals at Wimbledon, so this was a nice way to get over that disappointment. Cliff Drysdale was the voice of tennis on ESPN. He said, people went out for dinner. When they came back, they couldn't believe the match was still going on. It's unbelievable, isn't it? That was July 11th, 1982. At the time, the longest tennis match in history. We talked about the one just the other day, the singles match in Wimbledon with uh, John Isner, who was a United States player, and and his went three days, 70 to 68. (laughs) Is that unbelievable? So it was six hours and 22 minutes of tennis for the St. Louis folks. It was at the old Checkerdome. Remember the Checkerdome? The old arena, the Checkerdome. So it was John McEnroe who had been the world's number one against Mutz Vilander from Sweden, a teenager. A spectacular match. And both were delivering knockout blows, but that big fourth set, 17 to 15, was won by Vlander to get to the fifth set. You would think at that point McEnroe's done, right? All the momentum is in Vlander's corner, but he wasn't done. He outlasted Vlander 8-6 in the fifth set. McEnroe said he remembered thinking at the end, if this match was so great, why are most of the people gone? 
That's a tough one. But would you sit there for six hours and watch a tennis match? I wouldn't. McEnroe said at one point he thought it was going to go on forever. Well, it didn't, but the U.S. won and advanced. John Isner and Nicholas Mahout at Wimbledon beat it with an 11-hour, five-minute match in 2010 that we talked about just the other day. Incredible stuff, though. That was 41 years ago today down at the Checkerdome. A pretty cool memory, actually. Mutz Vilander, that's how you said his name. He was special. But then again, so was McEnroe. By the way, we were following the match yesterday of the American player, the young uh, black kid, um, Eubanks, Chris Eubanks. He's advanced, as we said, with an upset win over the fifth seed. Tomorrow he plays the Russian Medvedev. And the time of that match, as we said, as we talked to Dr. Rick, it's very difficult to find the schedules for these Wimbledon matches. Tennis does a horrible job of promoting their own game. Eubanks is going to play tomorrow at 8.30 in the morning. It'll be on ESPN. Seems like a good kid, real good kid. I would love, love to see it happen. Wouldn't that be spectacular? If he advances, he'd probably play Novak Djokovic in the semifinals. Djokovic is playing now. He's winning. So he'll probably advance. But I think it would get the entire community in the United States tennis community rallying around this young man, and it would be spectacular. I don't know if you saw this yesterday. Larry Nasser, who was once the sports doctor for the U.S. Olympic girls gymnastics team and was at Michigan State for a long time. He was convicted for sexually abusing the gymnasts. He was stabbed in prison on Sunday. Stabbed 10 times, twice in the neck. He's in stable condition. He was also stabbed in the back and the chest. Now, I never get into the discussion of whether I hope someone dies or not, but would the world miss this guy? This guy's satanic. What he did to those young girls is ungodly. He's lucky he's alive already, that one of the fathers of these girls didn't kill him with their bare hands. He's serving a 60-year prison sentence. Just give him the chair or let the prison inmates take care of it. They have a funny way of doing that. And they tried to, but they didn't do a good enough job. Unbelievable. He was attacked on his first prison camp when he went to Tucson, Arizona. And then they transferred him to his current maximum security federal prison in Tampa, outside of Tampa, I should say. It doesn't matter where they transfer this guy. Prisoners have a way. They have an honor code. There are certain crimes that prisoners, hardened criminals, won't accept. Pedophilia is one of them. This guy will not make it. There's no word on whether or not the warden caught the guy who did the stabbing or the guys. And that's because the warden doesn't want to know. He doesn't care. 
And as one former gymnast, Rachel Denhollander, she was the first woman to publicly accuse him of sexual assault, said that none of the girls I've talked to are rejoicing today. Well, he's not going to make it. I think we know that. Because the prisoners are going to settle that one themselves. That score will be settled, and it won't be in his favor. It simply will not be in his favor. We mentioned uh, Pat Fitzgerald, the basketball coach, or excuse me, the football coach at Northwestern being fired. And now, now we've got a situation at West Virginia where Bob Huggins, their longtime coach, said that he never resigned. He released a statement saying he never submitted a resignation notice to the school and should still be employed as his men's basketball coach. This sounds like a legal battle to me. June 17th, there was an announcement released by the school and attributed to Huggins saying he was stepping down following his arrest the night before for DWI. Now, that arrest came six weeks after Huggins used an anti-gay slur in a radio interview. That cost him a three-game suspension and a million-dollar salary reduction. But now he says he did not draft, nor did he review West Virginia's statement. This false statement was sent under my name, but no signature is included. I'm employed by West Virginia pursuant to an employment agreement. I never submitted the notice required under the employment agreement to voluntarily resign. Huggins said he voluntarily checked himself into a rehab center. He plans to remain there until he's cleared to return to active coaching duties. This is going to get ugly. I think everybody knows this is going to get ugly. The university told Huggins' attorney they don't plan to reinstate him. And in the statement, the university president says, if Mr. Huggins or his attorneys attempt to publicly suggest he somehow did not resign and retire from his position, please be advised the university will swiftly and aggressively defend itself from these spurious allegations. But his attorney said the contract requires the school or Huggins to send written notice of his resignation to the school's athletic director and general counsel. Huggins never did that. Sounds to me like Huggins has the upper hand here. The president of the school answered that by saying that Huggins did resign and they won't reinstate him and called any accusations meritless and contrary to the documented evidence. Well, what evidence are you talking about? The only evidence is a letter that you used as a statement saying he retired, but he didn't. There's no document that he submitted saying he was quitting. And according to his university contract with the school, unless he does that, he's still the head coach. Stay tuned. It's going to get ugly. Going to get very, very ugly. Bad situations for coaches in college sports. It's a tough job right now. They get paid pretty well, but I don't know that you get paid enough where you can, although almost any job is the same way now, you can hardly even utter a comment. 
And it's harder being a coach because you're in a locker room with a bunch of guys who, for the most part, are like-minded. I don't know what the anti-gay slur that Huggins supposedly used in a radio interview was. But it doesn't matter. They're monitoring your every word. And that's the problem you have if you're a coach today. And you also have the added problem that some player who's disgruntled and who isn't playing, thinks he should be, transfers, and then either lies or dumps all of your dirty laundry out there for everybody to see. Who knows? Here's what Huggins said as far as the gay slur. He was uh, talking about his former Cincinnati rivalry with Xavier during his time when he was the Cincinnati coach. That was two schools in the same city. He said, any school that can throw rubber penises on the floor and then say they didn't do it, my God, they can get away with anything, Huggins said. Apparently Xavier did that. The uh, host responded and said, I think it was transgender night, wasn't it? Huggins said, what it was was all those fags, those Catholic fags, I think. They were envious they didn't have one. <laughs> I can understand getting suspended for that one. I don't call that an anti-gay slur. I call that an anti-Catholic slur. So you're going to get suspended for that probably. You're going to get fined, and that's what happened. But then came the DWI. Huggins has had a DWI before, by the way. He punched a police horse in the face. Crazy stuff brewing in the mountains of West Virginia in Morgantown. Maybe Joe Manchin can step in and solve it. He's real good at that stuff, isn't he? The answer to that would be no, he's not. Not at all. Well, our good friends... At Monster Energy Drink, wants you to know a couple of things here. They support, they're not like typical marketing companies. For instance, you take the beer companies, they're hiring players, putting billboards up, TV commercials. What Monster Energy does is they support the scene of the event, the bands that are playing, the rock bands that are coming from our country music, whatever music it is. The athletes, the fans, they back the athletes. They want the athletes to make a career out of their passion. They promote the concert tours so that all of our favorite bands can come to our town. They celebrate with their fans and the riders, the bike, the motorbike riders, by throwing parties. They make the coolest events they can think of into a reality. That's how Monster Energy Drink promotes its brand. It's the most badass energy drink on the planet. Monster Energy, unleash the beast. And you're listening to the Monster Energy drink. Kevin Slayton, King's Court, right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. We're coming back with more of our show right after this, including Jay Paterno, the son of Joe Paterno. Am I the only one here tonight? Shaking my head and thinking something ain't right Is it just me? Am I losing my mind? 
And I'm standing on the edge of the end of time Am I the only one? Tell me I'm not Who thinks of taking all the good we got And turning it back Hell, I'll be damned I think I'm turning into my old man Am I the only one Willing to bleed Take a bullet for being free Screaming what the hell at my TV For telling me I'm not the only 
We welcome you back in on this Tuesday afternoon. Kevin Slayton with you in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, King's Court, on kevinslaytonshow.com. We're glad you're along for the ride. Our phone lines are always open for you, 636-348-4460. Any of the topics that we've talked about and discussed in our first hour, certainly always open for discussion. But uh, 12 years ago, Penn State had a scandal, not similar to what went on at Northwestern, but in some respects, you can hear the same echoes coming home that the school is letting down the community. They are letting down a football coach because the cowards that run the schools are just that, cowards. They're letting down all of the kids who've committed to go to Northwestern because of that coach. Where can those, co- where can those kids go now? And it was Penn State situation 12 years ago that the former assistant, Jerry Sandusky, who was not even a coach at the time, got into trouble with a foundation that he had called First Mile, and it was with kids. He had a lot of kids at his at his foundation. He was accused of pedophilia. And uh, the big story occurred in the shower of the locker rooms at Penn State where Sandusky was allowed to still come and shower and work out. Now, this was not Joe Paterno's idea. This was the university's idea. They gave him access as part of his retirement package. Joe Paterno didn't like Jerry Sandusky, respected him as a football coach, but in fact told him you would not succeed me as head coach. So don't wait around for that. So when the story broke, Joe Paterno had been advised by an assistant coach who saw Sandusky in the locker room with horse engaging in horseplay with a, a young kid. Paterno took it to his boss, the athletic director who took it to his boss, the head of campus security. Every one of these people did the right thing. The head of campus security took it to the university president. They all met, and they met with Sandusky, and they told him that any kind of behavior like that would not be tolerated. If it was nothing, if it was just horseplay, let's leave it at that, but no more. Well, as we all know, everything went to hell in a handbasket. The media got a hold of it. Penn State cowardly hired a former FBI director who's as as corrupt as they come, Louis Free, who for $9 million uh, issued a report destroying Penn State, destroying Joe Paterno's reputation. Penn State later coughed up $60 million to supposed victims, many of whom were coming out of the closet and later discovered weren't victims at all. The prosecutors in the case all said Joe Paterno was completely innocent. He had nothing to do with it, had no knowledge of it. And yet, the Board of Trustees fired Joe Paterno. His son, Jay Paterno, wrote a book not long thereafter chronicling what went on, how disgusting it was what they had done to his father and how difficult it was on the family. And Jay then came on our show to talk about the book and what happened. And I hope you'll enjoy this exchange with Jay Paterno, the son of the legendary Penn State coach, Joe Paterno, right here in the Monster Energy Drink, King's Court, on kevinslaytonshow.com. Well, uh, it, it's fall and it's football, and I'm I'm assuming you're excited, but I'm also assuming there are mixed emotions. Uh, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously I'd like to be coaching, but, you know, those things will – That'll come with, you know, in time, but, uh, you know, in the meantime, got this book done, got it out there, and I'm, I'm awfully proud of what we've been able to accomplish with it. 
In reading the book, I thought to myself, this must have been two things for you. Emotional, obviously, but difficult as well in the sense that uh, I would be so angry if I were in your shoes, even still today. And I'm angry and I'm not in your shoes uh, because the Penn State leadership failed so miserably. Oh, I don't think there's any question. You know, one of the things about the book is, uh, is I don't try and put myself into rooms where I wasn't, so to speak, where I don't know why they, you know, I don't, I can't tell you exactly why they did what they did. I could probably make pretty good guesses, which is, you know, which is what leads to incorrect stories. But, but the point is, the decisions they made were absolutely horrible as it related to Penn State. The outcomes were, were very, very bad for Penn State. And that's unfortunate because they really put a lot of things on Penn State that, quite frankly, were not Penn State's responsibility and uh, and really put a stain on Penn State. Uh, you know, there's still people that have heard of the Penn State scandal, and there is no Penn State scandal here. Yeah, it's amazing. The, the actions of one man. It is amazing. This has never been a Penn State scandal, except for the fact that the Free Report and Mark Emmert and the cowardice at Penn State at the time, in terms of leadership, allowed it to become a Penn State scandal, did this? Did the entire way this came down simply shock you at the way Penn State allowed the free report to be accepted as fact, which it never was, and the leadership to allow Mark Emmert to slap them silly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was one of those things that uh, the story just got stranger every day. Uh, a good friend of mine and I refer to this as, you know, the white Bronco, and the white. Here we are, three years later, and the white Bronco still has gas and it's still driving. I mean, it's just every. It just continues to get stranger. I mean, here two weeks ago, the NCAA issued guidelines as to how uh, athletic departments should handle allegations of sexual assault by student athletes or members of the athletic department. And those guidelines are exactly what Joe Paterno, exactly what Penn State's athletic department did. And they can't even see the irony in this and the, and the, the fact that they're contradicting themselves. They're punishing Penn State University. They're doing exactly what they are saying people should do. Jay, um, it just makes you scratch your head and, you know. Jay Paterno's our you, guest. You look in the mirror, you, know, you just sit there and go, "What? how does this work? Well, let me give you an example, Jay. The book is Paternal Legacy, by the way, folks. It's a wonderful read if you want to get a recap firsthand of what went on at Penn State a few years back in 2009 through 11, through 12, through 13, through 14. Now we're up to 2014. Jay, at Missouri, at the University of Missouri, they had allegations of rape by football players against a female swimmer. She reported them. The athletic department did nothing about it, did nothing about it, didn't report them to anybody, didn't investigate as Title IX law requires. The girl killed herself, and no one at Penn, no one at Missouri has suffered a consequence of any sort. No one from the NCAA has come in and fined the University of Missouri $60 million. And then we find out that prior to that, Four years prior to that, there was a running back who was accused of assaulting four different women on campus, including a female soccer player, and her scholarship was threatened by the soccer coach if she said anything. And again, nothing has happened at the University of Missouri. How did this happen at Penn State? What Were there people that had your dad's un, unequaled record of well, excellence is the word to use here? And doing it by the book and doing it the right way, was the jealousy so strong that that's the overriding emotion here? Um, I, I don't know if it's that. I mean, I think there was definitely, you know, my dad had told 
Grand Spaniard in the summer before uh, 2011 season, that this is going to be his last year. And they had put some things, you know, they had talked, uh, and I, I'm not going to get to who they had talked to, but there had been some discussion with some guys uh, about becoming the next coach and what the staff would look like and that kind of thing. You know, some president and my father had kind of decided that that's how it was going to go. And I think there may have been some trusty resentment towards the fact that, hey, why aren't we in the middle, why aren't we part of this discussion? And gave them the authority to, and that may have been part of it, and this may have been their chance uh, to take a shot and, and fire them and, and kind of remake this program and the university in their image. Um, and not that Joe ever tried to make the program the university his own image. I mean, Joe was a very humble human being, despite what some people may think. But, you know, I'm not sure, again, I don't want to try and guess as to what, uh, or state anything as fact as to why they may have done what they did. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, you look at the, the way Syracuse University handled it with Jim Beheim, you know, with their allegations against Bernie Fine, who at the time was a current coach. I mean, people forget that Jerry Sandusky was not a coach when Joe Paterno was given uh, a report about something. Um, but, you know, Syracuse stood behind Jim Beheim. He went out and had a press conference, and the media went away. And Penn State, uh, this story broke on a Friday. Nobody went in front of the camera until Wednesday night, which, as you know, in the media, I mean, one day later is, is too long. 128 hours later, forget about it. The first thing they do is fire two people, which to the whole world was an admission that there must be something even bigger here that we don't have. So nobody went away, and they just they offered up the university, uh, and uh, you know they'll they'll end up uh, they'll end up making amends for it personally. Believe me. Jay Paterno is with us. Jay, you mentioned um, going in front of the media. Your father wanted to have a press conference as soon as this all hit the fan, and Penn State stopped him. Fill us in on that. Why did they stop him, and why didn't Joe just say, you know what, too bad, I'm having one? Well, two things happened. Uh, on Sunday morning, um, uh, President Spanier wanted to, was told by John Thurma, was in, by the way, not the chairman of the board of trustees, was the vice chairman, and was in, not in charge of the university, and in no way authorized to do some of the things that he would do. Um, he told Grant Spanier, you, you are no longer to speak to this university. Uh, on Tuesday, Joe's press conference was literally imminent. The media was lined up outside, ready to go in. Joe had decided he was going to go in, answer the questions, and get this thing done, you know, talk about it, address it, and handle it. Uh, and John Thurma again canceled the press conference. Again, without any authority to do so. Um, so I think this whole story would have come out very, very differently if people were able to get out there and put the facts out early on in this case rather than have the facts spiral out of control. And, and, and you know, John Thurma has proven great leadership. I mean, he ran U.S. Steel's stock price into the ground and was fired as the CEO, and he really just took Penn State's reputation and ran into the ground. Uh, so, you know, he's got a heck of a track record. Then why didn't Joe say, you know what, too bad. I'm having it anyway. Well, well I think that's what people understand. I mean, Joe had great respect for authority. I mean, just, you know, he was, he was the most powerful guy in the state. He, was, he ran that university. You know, Graham Spanier will tell you every time Joe and he had a meeting, Joe went to Graham's office uh, out of respect for the fact that he that Graham was the president of the university and his boss. And um, so, I mean, he was not going to uh, be an insubordinate to and again, at that time, we didn't know who canceled the press conference. We had no idea who called it, and we were trying to find out uh, because the rumor started that they canceled the press conference and they were going to have Joe's fired any minute. 
but there was no communication from them to us at all. You know, this this uh, inability to handle things correctly by the Penn State administration, I'm not talking about Graham Spanier, I'm talking about the Board of Trustees. And then we, we have this free report, which was so bogus, and all people had to do, and I kept advocating, if you don't read the free report, then don't comment about Penn State. Because if you didn't read it, you don't understand what's in it and, and the, the the balderdash and the crap that was in it. Someone as close to your father as Phil Knight didn't read it. And right. he, he then, even in the uh, the forward to your book, says, well, then I did read it. And then it was, uh-oh, triple, double, uh-oh. And all of a sudden, he took the name of Joe Paterno off one of his buildings on the Nike campus, and he writes in the forward that, Jay, meaning you, of course, has said to make me feel better that Dad would have wanted you to take the name down off the building. He says, that made me feel better at first, but not for long, because I believe if the situation had been reversed, Joe Paterno would have left my name up, lynch mob be damned. Uh, Forgiven or not, I cannot escape that I was, at least for a time, one of them, meaning the free people and the idiots in the media who ran a false narrative. Uh, is Phil Knight going to restore the name of your dad to that building? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, again, I think it's going to take a little more time. Again, I mean, one of the things that happened when that when the free report came out and Nike issued that statement, um, we I had a feeling it was going to happen um, because it's a publicly traded corporation. He's one of a number of board of trustees, a board of directors. And and when it came out, you know, a friend of mine called and said, I, I said, guys, everybody just calm down, okay? Let's fight another day. And whether it goes back up or not, you know, I think the forward is a very, very powerful statement by Phil Knight. I think for, you know, unfortunately in this day and age, um, people who have notoriety or people in positions of power are very, very hesitant to ever admit a mistake. And when I asked him to write the forward, I didn't give him any parameters. I told him, I said, look, I'm going to talk about taking the name off of the book. Uh, and he said, I can handle it. He sent him the book. He read the book. He sent the forward back. And the part you read, the first time I read it, I couldn't help but cry because for him to stand to write this forward and say, I know if the roles had been reversed, Joe wouldn't have done it to me. Um, That's strong. Most people, I mean, that, that is a powerful, powerful statement. So, We'll see over time. And I think, you know, right now I'm thrilled with what he put in that forward. I think everybody that, you know, I've had people email me and said I couldn't get them forward without crying. I said, well, get ready because you will again. And this book, <laughs> some point. There's but, a lot. I thought it was very, I mean, it was very admirable. And the other the other thing that I mentioned in the acknowledgement at the end, because it kind of happened after the book was, written, was mostly written, Al Clemens, who was a member of the Board of Trustees in November of 2011, um, made a statement at a Penn State Board of Trustee meeting saying, we were wrong, and I regret, I'll always regret being part of that. And I thought that took tremendous courage, and I admire him for saying that. And um, a lot of people should be saying the same thing. But, Jay, it's so difficult to get the word out. We've tried here for three, four years on our show, and we've done a good job of it, I believe. Uh, I, know John's, I know John Ziegler has done some of it. I know other people have. But ESPN, in my opinion, has been the most culpable of all in running a false narrative. And I think what happens in today's media is when Louis Free has a press conference and says, here's what happened, here's the report, no one read it, they read the Cliff Notes version, 
And they run with the narrative because they were reporting on it an hour after it was handed out. Well, you couldn't have read the 260 pages in an hour. And that's where it all went south. Well, no, I think when we get discovery in these lawsuits with the NCAA, I think there's going to be some real eye-opening things in there because um, originally we were we were cooperating. You know, we I I sat in front of the free group. Uh, you know, I sat in front of them for an hour forty eight minutes. I answered three or four questions about Jerry Sandusky, and the rest of it was all about institutional control. And that was in December of two thousand eleven, and I knew right then and there where it was headed. I talk about that in the book very specifically. Um, but that said. We were, you know, our lawyer attorneys were talking with them and said, look, we'd like the chance to answer any allegations or assertions you're going to make about Joe with the documents that we have, uh, and we're more than happy to do it. And so he said, no, just turn over everything you have. We said, no, we want to be able to address certain uh, assertions and allegations you're going to make. And they said, okay, we have plenty of time. This report's not going to come out until the end of August, and it was going to be the middle of August. Well, somewhere along the way, uh, in June, they decided it was going to come out, uh, all-Star Break, which was a, a master plan in terms of them PR. They leaked some emails about two weeks before, and I said to Dan McGinn, who was one of the guys working with us on this, I said, it's coming out the Thursday All-Star Break because there's no football, basketball, hockey, or baseball being played. And whatever he says will get run over and over and over and over again, and it will set in cement. And that's exactly what happened. And he went up there and said some things, and... Um, uh, that were absolutely not true and have been proven not to be true by the people who actually prosecuted the case as it relates to my dad. You know, examples of the media. Colin Coward said that uh, Joe Paterno should have known that Sandusky had been to a grand jury in 1998. Well, there was no grand jury in 1998. Right. So that's an absolute falsehood. But yet, once it's out there, it's hard to get it back. Uh, Coward also asserted that Paterno should have fired Sandusky in 2001. Well, of course, he would have had to have rehired him because he wasn't working there in 2001. I mean, well, I think I think I think what happens is, is, you know, there's such a rush, and you know, in the dedication book, I talked about you know, the pressure to be first over being right, and you know, I, I was on Colin Coward's show a couple weeks ago, and it's a very very different situation and very very different line of questioning than there was a year and a half, two years ago, because I think there is some recognition of the fact that, um, that maybe, you know, it, it, he asked me really good, hard questions, but allowed me to answer. And you could tell there's a little different attitude about it. Like Francesa, WFAN in New York, very different after reading the book um, and had read the book and had read the free report. And you could tell his opinion now that they've studied it. Bob Costas, who I know has been on your show and talked about it after he read the free report, uh, came to very, very different conclusions. Uh, and, you know, he's got a copy of the book. So there's a lot of people that are starting to look at this and reevaluate. There's some that won't. I mean, Christine Brennan apparently seems that she'll never yeah. have to revisit this. But, you know, you never no, know. You know, you know what? You... Stephen A. Smith in February of 2013 uh, changed some of the things he said after I kind of filled him in on some of the facts. So it just takes, you got to keep prodding and prodding and prodding. We destroyed Christine Brennan on this show because she hadn't read the free report, which none of them did, by the way. And and, and one of the few that ever admitted he didn't was Bob Costas, and Bob's a friend. And, and I asked Bob after his initial comments, and here's what happened with Bob Costas. He lands in London off a plane for the Olympics, and he's immediately called by the producer of the Today Show and given a skeleton version of the free report, and then he responds to it. And I said, Bob, you didn't read it, did you? He said, no, I, I didn't have a chance to. And I said, you've got to read the whole thing. 
And when you do, I guarantee you, knowing you, you'll not have that opinion. And he didn't have it. And to his credit, Bob went back and read the whole thing. Unfortunately, I would guess 99.9% of the media have never read that report to this day. Oh, I, I would guarantee that's probably the case. And, and, you know, they, like I said, they set up a perfect storm. They released the report at 9 o'clock, had a press conference at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, Louis Free leaves the stage, and nobody, he never answers another question about it again. Um, and, you know, obviously I know he's a quarterback, and I hope he wishes his recovery. Um, I don't mean to be disrespectful if someone's in the hospital right now, but as it relates to this, this situation, it was an ideal thing. And, you know, part of his contract with Penn State, he was supposed to come address the board of trustees and answer questions about it. He has never done that. Um, we've offered every time we've gone on uh, to talk about it, you know, we've offered, you know, Bob Cox has had a show where he had our attorneys on and, and some people who talked about the report we issued. They invited him on. He wouldn't come on. Mark Emmer wouldn't come on. Um, you know, they wouldn't come on and answer questions about yeah. it. And I think that that is a very telling situation where, you know, they don't want to talk about it. There's a reason. Yeah, what are you they're hiding? They're standing on quicksand. Yeah, what are you hiding from if you won't come on with Bob Costas and he has the people that, that wrote the conflicting report of the free report, Dick Thornburg and Rob Clementi, who was an FBI, FBI profiler, and Thornburg, who was a former attorney general, who wrote a report conflicting everything that Free said, and you won't come on and defend your position. But why, why does America... And why do, and I'm telling you, Jay, I'm pointing at ESPN because they continue the false narrative and they won't do, this is a perfect 30 for 30 opportunity, as Bob Costa suggested to me one time. Why won't they do that? Well, I think it's, it's I think they'll get there at, that, at some point. I think there's no question about it. Um, we had actually had some discussions with them about the documentary on Joe's life and then the free, when the free report came out, we just thought it wasn't the right time to really do this. Um, we had to, you know, and I think the book will help push that, push that ball down the field a little bit more. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Um, I've had people, uh, email me and said, you know what, I read your book and after I read it, I now understand how father scapegoated. I understand how this went terribly awry. And unfortunately, every action, you know, one of the things that, that's allowed some people in the media is to maintain that free is right, to maintain that narrative is that there's been no pushback in university. I mean, that's, that's a very telling thing to a lot of people. Well, they say, well, if this is true, well, the university picked 26 victims, $60 million. Um, you know, the vast majority of them had never, had nothing to do with Penn State and weren't going to take responsibility. Um, but to the world, that looks like you're telling everybody that 26 kids would, I mean, people are stunned when they understand that, you know, vast majority, the overwhelming majority of the things Gary Sandusky was convicted of have absolutely nothing where near Penn State. Um, it's not university actions have, have pointed them to belief. Jay Paterno is our guest. The book is Paternal Legacy. Jay, it, it amazes me. This all starts, of course, because of a conversation that uh, Mike McQuarrie had with your dad. Uh, McQuarrie has changed that story four different times at the very minimum. Uh, I don't know what he's told the last time. Do you believe that he actually witnessed a sexual assault by Sandusky in 2001? I've never talked to him about it, so I couldn't tell you what he said to anybody, and that's by design that I haven't talked to him because we kind of, you know, none of us knew that that conversation had occurred. 
became something we were all aware of because we were all we all got questioned by the police. Uh, and then we were kind of asked, and I never had a conversation with Mike McCreary about it. I never had a conversation with my dad about it. So I don't know what was said. I mean, I know there's a lot of speculations of what's said. I have not read all the testimony and all the things from every case, every court case. Uh, you know, I haven't read every word stated in court by the victim and Mike McCreary and everybody, so I can't tell you. And I want to be careful. I don't get into speculating as to what someone said and what someone didn't say without really knowing exactly or having heard it written or not. I know in the book you say that your dad simply wanted to find the truth. He wanted to find out the truth. Do you think he believed that Sandusky was guilty of these types of things? Oh, I think, yeah. I think, it, it, well, you know, I don't know, because when he died, obviously the trial had not happened. And my dad was somebody who believed in innocence until proven guilty. But in the conversations I had, he appeared that he believed uh, that the, the evidence that he had seen the presentment and all that kind of thing led him to think, you know, I, how could somebody do this? I think it was still very hard for me to get his head around it, um, as it was for all of us. I mean, people say, well, your dad was old. Well, I'm not old. And it's hard to fathom anybody doing this, even though it's in the news, especially somebody that you know. Um, so, you know, obviously my dad died before he had the benefit of seeing what happened in the courtroom. So, you know, I don't want to really get into hypothetical what he may or may not have thought of, but certainly his first concern um, up to the day he died was that, the victims of whatever happened, uh, that, that justice be done, the truth come out, and that's really what he wanted. So, I mean, that was a real talk. Here's something that, that's always struck me as odd, and, of course, when it comes to the media, nothing strikes me as odd, but um, your dad is a football coach, was a football coach for all of his years, was a great teacher, and, and was a great human being by everyone's account that knew him. Experts in the field of child pedophilia looked into Jerry Sandusky's background, allowed him to adopt foster kids, allowed him to run this charity for kids, for wayward kids. They looked into his accusations in 1998, and they came away with nothing. They came away with no reason to prohibit him from adopting these kids, no reason to prosecute him, in fact, exonerated him. And yet your dad gets a phone call from Mike McQuarrie, and your dad's supposed to be an expert in child pedophilia? Oh, well, I mean, what people will tell you is he was the most powerful man in the state. That's the argument they give you. Number one, that's not true. Number two, he coached football. Okay, Whether he won zero games, ten games, or 409 games, okay, it didn't sit to equal one of the eyes of the law. But people say, well, he was Joe Paterno. We expect more out of him. Well, the truth of the matter was, Joe was not a mandatory reporter under the law in 2001, yet he still reported it. Um, and he reported something he didn't necessarily know to be true. Um, but it was an allegation made by somebody, and he followed the law exactly as he was supposed to, and all that he was allowed to do. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, whole, the whole a mob of people with pitchforks and torches was really riled up by Newton, who was the state police commissioner who made the comment that Joe failed his moral obligation. He had a moral obligation to do more. Absolutely not true. The moral obligation you have is to report exactly the way the law tells you, simply because of the fact that you know, people say, why didn't he call Jerry? Well, if you call the guy who's going to be accused of that right. and investigate this, they can just 
destroy evidence. They can contact victims and say, keep your mouth shut. People say, why did he try and do this? He had no subpoena power. He had no police force. He had no ability to investigate. So, you know, that argument about Joe should have done more is really rings hollow when you sit back and look at it rationally, which I understand difficult for people when it comes to cases of child sexual abuse. I get that. But but you have to be fair. One thing is Fred Berlin, who was, who was an expert in this field at Johns Hopkins University, said, you know, in the... We, we must not make uh, the treatment of adults, you know, unindicted adults, a uh, collateral damage in our uh, pursuit to do what's right to these kids. And, and that's what happened to my dad. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that while people claim he was so powerful and he could have done more, they want to hang him for his comment in hindsight, I wish I could have done more. Well, that's a big statement, but it doesn't mean that he did anything wrong. Correct, but that's not how the world's, you know, that, that, that's the environment that we're in right now, and that's why everybody in the room that day told him not to put that in the statement. He said, I'm going to put it in the statement, because that's, that's the truth. You know, I wish I had been more aware of these issues or been able to spot something. You know, I, I've made this argument with people all over the country. I say, you, anytime you're around here in New York City, there are signs all over the place. If you see something, say something. Well, we all know that if somebody leaves a car running in Times Square, that's a little suspicious. Or if somebody leaves a package under a seat in the subway in New York City, that's a little suspicious. You know what you're looking for, so you can say something. When it comes to this, we don't know what we're looking for most of us. And certainly, you know, my dad coached in college, which is 18 to 22-year-old. Uh, not, he wasn't in childhood education. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a person that was trained in, would even know what to look for in these situations. But he, because he went to football games, we described certain extra uh, human uh, powers to him. But, you know, he was the first one to say, you know, whether it was, hey, coach, what do you think is going to happen Saturday? Or what's going to happen with the NCAA and these rules? Or, you know, we'd ask him certain things. He'd say, guys, guys I wish I was on mission like you I think I am. And, you know, all of us left the meeting and went to our offices and looked up what the hell our mission meant, first of all. And then once we figured Figured out what we meant. We knew he was saying, "Look, I'm not all powerful. I'm not all seeing." But people wanted to have been that, and it's just you know. And, and I think what's important, looking back historically, um, you can't judge people's actions in 2001 based on what we know in 2014 and what they did not know in 2001. It's a very unfair standard. Well, and like I say, when the experts don't recognize it, how is your father or anyone at Penn State and their administration supposed to figure out what Jerry Sandusky may or may not be up to? You know, the last, uh, this was such a tragedy on so many levels. Uh, the last days of your father's life, I know in the book you go into a very explicit detail. Your young son reading the poem, If by Rudyard Kipling, to Joe at his bedside. Uh, try to give our listeners a sense of the emotions uh, during that week. Well, you know, he, he left the house about nine days before, he went to the hospital about nine days before he died. Maybe 10, 10, 11, you know, Matt, my man is probably off. But he left on a Friday, um, and then and then died a week later on the Sunday. So it was nine, ten days it was. But up until Thursday night, everything looked like it was heading the right direction. You know, we were really encouraged, and it was, we, I remember saying, "This is good. We get that house, gets good night's sleep, he's resting, and you know, when he gets his treatment, he's right in the same building." 
and then Thursday night, the doctor grabbed me to haul my way out, and he said, you know, Joe's really up against it right now. And, you know, when your father's 85 years old and battling lung cancer, and the doctor says he's up against it, you don't have to ask what he's up against. Um, and then I just kind of brushed it off. and said, oh, he always comes back from this. He's not worried about it. Friday morning, my sister called, and, and I knew that it was probably, you know, I spent uh, the next 48 hours, I spent 46 of them in the hospital room. Um, and it was sad. Uh, you know, he laughed, and he, we made jokes, and he laughed, and he was alert. He just had a ventilator and couldn't talk. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was peaceful. And the, the great thing about it, and never obviously, when I say great as in the thing I'm most thankful for is that there was nothing left unsaid. Um, through those, but watching the grandkids go in, I wanted to talk to them. I'm watching my mom sing to them. Um, you know, all these little these little moments that I'll never forget. I mean, just it's uh, it was it was very very tough to write about sometimes, some points, and then it was then I felt really good that I had. I let my mom read it. And said, you, "Are you okay with everything I've written here?" And she said, "Yeah, I am. I really am." And um, and mostly because. I wrote it mostly because I wanted people to understand the love that his family had for him, that a lot of other people had for him. Um, probably the most challenging moment of the entire thing was Saturday night when a student website reported he had died, and CBS Sports picked it up and ran with it. And you know, then I had to go, you know, leave my dad and go issue a tweet, basically saying he's still alive. But you know, it was, uh, you know, when the time came, you know, I felt comfortable that I'd let nothing undone. Jay Paterno is our guest. The book is The Paternal Legacy. Jay, so many people in this country are misled by this lawsuit uh, against the NCAA, uh, Louis Free, of course, and the Free Report. They think it's the paternal family and the paternal family alone. This lawsuit has been joined by faculty members, by former Penn State players, by coaches. Uh, this is a an all-encompassing group of plaintiffs, including uh, members of the Board of Trustees led by Anthony Lebrano. This is not Jay Paterno, Sue Paterno, and your family against the NCA. This is a lot of uh, members. This lawsuit encompasses a lot of people who want the truth out and who want the NCA to be accountable for what they did, not only to Penn State, and the free report for what they did to your father. Well, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, but it's easy to write the paternal family lawsuit. That's the easy, lazy way to cover that lawsuit. Um, but like, as you mentioned, it covers a bunch of people. It covers members of the board of trustees who were trustees when this decision, the consent decree was agreed to, free report was agreed to. Um, it, it, it covers trustees that were not consulted in making the decision to accept the NSA sanctions, which they should have been. It covers former players who uh, feel like their time at Penn State and what they did has been tainted by this. Up until this happened, when our former players walked in for, to a job interview and they said, oh, uh, what did you play football? You played for Joe Paterno. That was a plus. Now they walk in, whether it's a job interview, whether it's a sales call, whether it is any kind of business relationship, when they say they play football for right, Penn State, there's a different connotation because of what is wrongly asserted in that report. Not to mention, you know, as one of the guys said to me, you know, my son looked at the media guide and said 2005, 0 and 1. And he said, Dad, I thought you won a bunch of games. And that's just plain to his son. So, I mean, there are a lot of things involved, but you also have faculty members who feel that the university has been, you know, strained 
or you know the, the name of the university reputation has been kind of tarred and feathered by this. You have former coaches. Uh, you know, you know everybody forgets that. You know, there were a lot of people in the, in the media right away saying that all the coaches knew about Darius University, and the university did not allow us to respond as coaches for two weeks to those things, which did a lot of damage to our reputation. So I mean, this thing, as I say in the in the book, you know, to, to understand, I mean, obviously the people who are most hurt by this are victims of the abuse, but that having said that. Acknowledging that this bomb that went off threw shrapnel all over the place and did untold damage to a lot of other people doesn't take away from the fact that they they are the primary victims, but there are a lot of the people that were damaged by this. And this lawsuit is a representation of a lot of different groups that, that feel that the, the free report and the incident. And not only the lawsuit, but the way the media has handled this, as you mentioned in the book, Christine Brennan says she knew everything she needed to know before reading your report. She didn't even read the free report. So this is someone at USA Today. This shows you the standards of USA Today. She didn't even read the free report, and we, we took care of that in our interview with her. And she claims she doesn't need to read the report of Dick Thornburg and uh, Mr. Clemente refuting the free report. So people that have that closed mind are going to continue to do this. How do you fight that from a PR standpoint, and how does Penn State fight it other than the lawsuit, what what other recourse do you have? Well, I think the lawsuit is, is the big piece right? because obviously, you know, people say, "Oh, why are you suing?" Well, I'm doing it. Whether you know, you got to be able to separate Penn State, the institution that we love, from the administrators who took actions that did damage to Penn State. So, by going after this, we're really doing Penn State doing something for Penn State, not against Penn State. Um, but I think what's important to understand is one of the reasons that this has to take place, and I wish it didn't, one of the reasons that these lawsuits have to take place is because without subpoena, without uh, depositions, we're never going to have any, no one's ever going to explain why they did what they did. We're never going to find out, what, you know, what was in the correspondence between certain people um, that was going back and forth. Why they took the uh, you know why they took what was the gold standard, the academic and athletic integrity and excellence. Just keep in mind, you know, we weren't just a graduate of players and we, you know, the last seven years of his career, built the sixth best record in the country on the field and was the only we were the only program that graduated over eighty percent of our players and won over seventy-seven percent of our games. So they took what was the gold standard of a student athlete centered program, athletic department across the board every sport and threw it under the bus and no one's explained why and we would like those answers as would a lot of people and you know what? Children, and this is the only way they're going to do it they're not going to willingly come out and say oh yeah well, we decided to do it. they got to be forced to do it in subpoenas and depositions and I always say that you know all of this began with Mike McQuarrie's comments and your father sent that to the proper people because it wasn't his place to, to judge guilt or innocence and he did the right thing and if I were his lawyer I would have said the same thing don't you dare comment uh, beyond this, I wouldn't have let him do a press conference, but he wanted to anyway. But in McQuarrie's case, you know, I know there was a wide receiver job opening up uh, two days before that shower episode took place, and uh, Mike McQuarrie uh, wanted that job. Uh, do you think that had anything to do with this? Well, I don't know that, but I know this. I mean, anybody who believes that Joe wanted to cover this up, the easy cover-up would have been to say, 
hey, Mike, we just had a job open up as a coach. Why don't you become the wide receiver coach and we keep the damn mouth shut? That's a cover-up. Not, hey, we'll report this to the athletic director and the vice president, and they, the athletic director will then go to the second mile and tell them about it. That's not a cover-up. Um, if you think that that was an attempt at a cover-up by Joe Paterno, you assume two things about him. Number one, he's corrupt, which uh, 61 years of his professional life have proven he is not corrupt. Um, and you assume he's stupid, which, again, 61 years of his professional, <laughs> professional life prove he is neither corrupt nor stupid. So I think it's important to note that there was a wide receiver job open in 2001 when this happened, not necessarily to gauge anybody's motives as it relates to what Mike may or may not have been going to jail for, but more so as it relates to the fact that this was not an attempt to cover up. That's the easy cover up. Yeah, and, and that's what that should. That's what if you were covering it up, that's what you would have done. Yeah, I'm, and I'm taking this to the proper authorities ahead of me, above me. And by the way, you're not getting that wide receivers job. Right, and he didn't get it, and you right. know, he goes, you're not real. So even when when and I'll, and I'll give you a little further insight because uh, I was on the offensive staff at that time, and Joe said to us, "Look, get some candidates, and let's talk about who you want to hire." He never once said, would you guys consider hiring Mike McQuarrie in 2001? Did not, did not put his name out there, did not throw it out, which tells you that he, there wasn't anything in the back of his mind where he was going to try and cover this up or use it to try and, you know, get Mike's silence on this. Um, because obviously if you want to silence, you don't direct him to other people. And that's what Joe did. He directed him to Tim Curley and to Gary Schultz. And then, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, he went to the second bottle of it. So, Clearly, you're not looking at a situation where people say, let's, let's, you know, hide this. Jay, I've kept you for a long time. We'll let you go here real quickly here. But I, uh, throughout all of this, I looked at your father and I thought, how in the world does Joe not just get angry about this? And he never, he never at least allowed it to come out in the public that he was furious with what took place. How was he behind the scenes? Was he, was he just furious at what they did to him? No, I mean, you know, the only time I saw him where he was um, really kind of ired, or, you know, his ire was peaked, was um, in December when uh, Rod Erickson did an interview with USA Today and uh, basically said, you know, we want Penn State to be known as a great research institution, not just a football factory. Because he said, we are a great research institution. We're known as a and we are not a football fact, and we never have been one. And that's when he kind of took it upon, you know, he said to me, you know, we can't let them, we can't let that be the story here, and we can't let them put this on, on the athletic department, because this is not an athletic department problem. And he was right. He was absolutely right about it. And um, so that's the only time I really saw him where he wasn't, he wasn't angry, he wasn't venomous. It was just, I can't believe they'd say that. And, and especially a guy like Rod Erickson who'd been around as long as he had and knew, absolutely knew it wasn't true. Absolutely knew it wasn't true. Um, you know, my, anybody who thinks that you know, my dad would put the welfare of children, the welfare of his football program or the welfare of children or build a program that was simply football factory just doesn't know him. And he's absolutely, you know, you can't ignore what someone's done for 80-something years of their life uh, and then assume that on one, in one moment they're going to turn and throw it all away. Jay, as you look back on it now, Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, do you think anything will come of those lawsuits, those criminal proceedings? Uh, you know, it's been so long. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of one of, you know, I don't, I'm not a legal expert, but um, you all say this about those three guys. I mean, I, I had a lot of professional dealings with them, um, not with 
with Gary, but certainly had some interactions with Ranch Band. Had a lot of a lot of interactions with him early, and you know, none of them ever been it's been nothing but honest with me. But so what was what and when and you know, it's uh, everybody will be will be relieved once they actually get a date and get after it and you know see what happens because I think there's some still that's where the last piece of puzzle really can reside in the criminal trial and, and uh, you know that day comes and we'll know a little more. But as it relates to my dad, I do know this. I mean, the, the prosecutors in the case, despite what Billy Friedman thinks, you know, the prosecutors had, had access to all the evidence. Whenever people he stated that Joe was honest and forthcoming and cooperative and was in no way involved in an attempt to conceal or cover up. So, to me, as it relates to my dad, that book's closed. You better believe it. Hey, Jay, great stuff. Great book, The Paternal Legacy, folks. If you, and, and, you know, we didn't even get into the football stuff, and I apologize for that, but I know there's great football stories in here as well as the elephant in the room stories. And uh, it's a wonderfully touching book. Uh, I, I, I would imagine that it was at least at the very, at the very least, Something that helped you mentally and emotionally. Oh, I don't think there's any question. I think it's, um, you know, when you, when my dad died so publicly, public viewing, public memorial service, and all this kind of thing, um, and having to deliver the last eulogy at memorial service that week really was. Uh, I didn't really have a chance to kind of just kind of cry and let it out and realize what just happened. So this book kind of helped me. And I think one of the things you touched upon and it relates to this book is, you know, this was a. Joe was a big figure as it related to college football. And there's, there's some funny stories in there about, you know, I smile, man, they call him the house. There's stories about sitting in Walter Payton's living room with Griffin's son and listening to the two of them talk. And it just goes on and on and on. You know, there's stories about Urban Meyer in there. And there's stories about, you know, Joe recruiting Jim Brown and, you know, Al Davis trying to, I mean, there's all these different people that when I started writing this book, and these stories started coming up. Uh, I was like, God, this guy knew everybody. I mean, even to the point where in the chapter on politics, you know, there was a day in February of 1988 where George H.W. Bush, the vice president of the United States, is riding around in the car. stuff jay hey thanks so much and it's been our privilege and our honor to uh, to help uncover this story uh this uh this lawsuit is going to be the final truth uh, about this and until louis free and mark emmert answer questions under oath i wouldn't take a word they say as anywhere near believable absolutely i, I you know i'm not going to disagree with you and uh that day's coming so uh you know we you know tolstoy said the greatest warriors are time and patience I got patience. That's the best. And I got time. I'm still a young man. I'm going to live to see this one through. And by the way, I might add that as the former director of the FBI, as a federal judge, Louis Free has disgraced the legal profession with his conduct here in not responding to questions. He's an absolute disgrace. That's my point. Well, I won't disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay. Thanks so much for the time, and we appreciate a great book, and thank you for that. Thanks, Jay. Take care. And tell your mom hello. Will do. Thanks, All Jay. Right. That's Jay Paterno, the author of Paternal Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of 
my father, and uh, he addresses everything in that. He sure did. And uh, we appreciated uh, Jay coming on at the time, and uh, we're glad we're able to share that interview with you here today. Kevin Slayton with you in the Monster Energy Drink King's Court right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. You know, he, he talked about some funny stories about recruiting. Uh, his mother told me a story about Jimmy Cephalo. Jimmy Cephalo was a highly recruited player. Uh, he ended up playing for the Miami Dolphins in the, in the NFL for a number of years. But when he was being recruited, he was away on a recruiting trip. I believe it was to Ohio State. It might have been Michigan. And Joe Paterno had come to recruit him to talk to his parents on a Sunday. And so Joe Paterno was at the home, and they made spaghetti dinner together, Joe and his parents. And Cephalo came back from the recruiting trip, didn't know that Paterno was there, walked into the house, and as he walked in, he announced, I'm going to Ohio State or Michigan, whichever one it was that he had just visited. And his mom walked out of the kitchen and said, no, you're not. You're going to Penn State. And he comes walking to the kitchen, and he sees Paterno there smiling ear to ear. <laughs> and that's how he got Jimmy Cephalo, one of the most coveted players of his high school class. Great stories in that book. It, it is a great book, and Jay Paterno's a great guy. And those depositions under oath did take place, at which time Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, and Louis Free were widely ripped to pieces Emmert, in fact, had to rescind all of the penalties that he had put upon Penn State's football program. They had taken away a number of victories. Can you imagine that? It's, it's like third-grade stuff. The players that I had talked to said, hey, we know we won those games. We're not going to let this guy tarnish our reputation or our legacy at Penn State. We know we won those games. So for the longest time, Joe Paterno, whose 409 wins stood as the number one in all of college football history in terms of victories, he had been reduced to second behind Bobby Bowden at Florida State, to which Bobby Bowden replied, I'm not the leader in victories Joe Paterno is. Everybody knew. It was just juvenile stuff coming from Mark Emmert to try to cover his own ass. Well, he had to give everything back. All of the, the victories were given back. The scholarships were given back. Everything. So what happened in the witch hunt, the absolute witch hunt from Mark Emmer and the NCAA and the media and Louis Free didn't hold water. Louis Free was later disgraced when it was discovered that he had done a similar investigation into FIFA, the governing body of soccer, and it was proven to be in, in court lawsuit after lawsuit that Free had lied. Louis Free is a typical FBI director in the history of the FBI. He's a liar and he's corrupt. And now we're finding out that he may well be one eye, the deep throat source that we just found out about from the whistleblower who was on the run before he resurfaced with all kinds of things about the Bidens and how many tens of millions of dollars they took from China illegally. It's funny how it all comes home to roost, isn't it? And it does. It certainly does. Well, we're glad you joined us today in the Monster Energy Drink King's Court right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. Don't forget the podcast is coming up. It'll be on the uh, website here. It'll be on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Anchor, any place you listen to podcasts. We're back fighting the good fight for you again in the sports world tomorrow right here, noon to 2 Central Time, in the Monster Energy Drink King's Court only live on KevinSlaytonShow.com. It's the only place you can find us live, no place else. Don't forget, 
when you need that boost or that push or that focus, maybe just a punch of energy to get you through the day, you need Monster Energy Drink. The world's greatest skiers and skaters, boarders and bikers, rockers and racers, gamers and girls, they know it's the most badass energy drink on the planet. Unleash the beast with Monster Energy Drink. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, Maureen. We'll see you all back here tomorrow.